0: Amen. if you would take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Proverbs chapter 14 and we will look be looking at verse 34. This month we have set aside to examine several areas of our lives and the examination are these areas Christ centered or not. We considered Christ-centered finance, Christ-centered relationships. Today, we will consider Christ-centered citizenship. And next week, we will consider Christ-centered church life, as Scott will consider with us the means of grace which God has ordained for us to use. Starting in September, I hope you'll even now be planning and reading we will begin the book of First John, the letter of First John, together in September. Matthew fourteen, uh, Proverb fourteen, verse thirty-four. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. How do we function? as citizens to two separate kingdoms. We are citizens of the United States, land of the free, home of the brave, and with all of our sin and trouble, a great nation. In my estimation, still the greatest nation on the earth right now. And we are thankful for that. We live on the uh, equity that has been built up by uh, generations of believers. And we want to recognize that. But we're not merely citizens of the U.S. of A. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Philippians chapter three, verse 20 says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are presently aligned in two kingdoms. Now, even as I say that phrase, two kingdoms, there are all sorts of debate in theological circles about two kingdoms and radical two kingdoms and how to work these things out. Well, I want to ask this question this morning, where do these citizenships overlap? So, if you can imagine a Venn diagram Where is it and how does it that our citizenship in one kingdom affects the citizenship in the other? And before we consider that, there are some dangers that we should address and prepare and take up before we consider that so that we would be forewarned, so that we would know uh, how we ought to proceed. Danger one, churches have christians have whether wittingly or unwittingly taken verses to god's covenant people israel and tried to apply those verses to america this is a travesty we should not do that america is not israel we are not god's people We are not that ancient people that God formed out of nothing to fulfill his saving purposes in Christ. That is not who we are. So do not fill in the blank, remove Israel and fill in America when you read the scriptures. Beware that danger. A second danger, and it's really the other side, a polar opposite. We take God's word and we take God's warnings and we apply them to others and we apply them to people around us and we apply them to the nation that we're a part of, but we separate ourselves from the nation that we're actually a part of. So wherein we claim our heavenly citizenship, but we disavow our earthly citizenship. It's a danger. So we look around and say, I can't believe what they're doing. I can't believe what they are doing. And we disavow ourselves completely of our earthly citizenship as though it's them, not us. Another danger. We don't play any role. We say these two things never touch. As if secular powers will actually do good and right by mankind. It's not a friend of grace. This world is not a friend of grace. We we pretend and we want to be completely separated. And this was the Anabaptist era for so long. So separated. And continues to be. And as a result... God's righteous standards are completely ignored, and God is forgotten in the land. So there's three dangers. There are pitfalls all around us. So as we proceed, I want us to proceed and look at three main headings. Before we can arrive at any conclusions, before we can start to apply just a straightforward text. I mean, this text is very straightforward. Righteousness exalts a nature. Sin or reproach to any people, all right? You don't have to go to seminary to figure that one out. This is very straightforward. So before we actually apply it, though, I want to address God's dealings with the nations under three headings so that we may apply it correctly. First off, if we're to understand God's role in the world and our nation, and our role as citizens, how should we live in our day-to-day lives? First thing we need to understand that God is that God has sovereign rule over the nations. All of them. God has sovereign rule over the nations, including the United States of America. And that truth is taught in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 4. You remember Daniel chapter 4, they are in exile in Babylon, the great world power Babylon, of course the head of that empire at this time is Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And all of Nebuchadnezzar's advisors are unable to interpret this dream. And so he calls for Daniel, who has quite the reputation for being able to interpret dreams. And I want us to notice the account of the dream, the interpretation of the dream, and the focal point of the dream. So, verses 17 and 18. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So this dream, whatever else comes out of this dream, what is self-evident in this dream is that the living will know the reality. The living, not just Israel, but Babylon, all the living of the earth, that they would know that Yahweh rules. And he gives the kingdoms, not to the mighty, not to the wisest, not to the most able, but he gives the kingdoms to whomever he will. And he sets up the lowest of men over it. So this dream is something. And Daniel begins his interpretation, verse 19. And what unfolds in this interpretation, the strange dealings of God with Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to become like a beast of the field, this animal that eats grass, and he's going to learn a simple lesson. Look at verse 25. Let's see. What is it that Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn And you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you'll be wet by the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So the interpretation underscores the one element that was actually self-interpreting in the dream itself. And then, guess what? It all comes to pass. It all happens. Just like Daniel says it's going to happen, the dream uh, comes, to, comes to fruition. And at the end of the day, verses 34 and 35, it, at the end of the day, what's the result At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? All the nations are under the sovereign rule of God, whether they recognize it or they don't recognize it. Job speaks of the same thing in Job chapter 12, verses 23 through 25. It says he makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like drunken men. So when the nation's leaders wander around in darkness, unable to find their way out, it is the work of Almighty God. When the leaders of the earth, when they don't even have the power to sort out their own troubles, when they are like a drunk man who's unable to figure out some complex mechanism when that's the case, they merely stagger around like drunken men. That is the work of the sovereign God. And the New Testament says, this adds to this glorious truth, that that power, the power that God has over the nations, that power has been deposited into the pierced hands of the Son of God, who said in commissioning his followers, all authority has been deposited With me in heaven and on earth. On earth where great men sit in their oval rooms and great leaders and great kings of the earth, they all have their summits. Jesus says, all authority has been delivered to me. Jesus has. Ephesians 1 is an exposition of that power. Jesus has. In verses 20 through 23 that he worked in Christ of him who feels all in all. The nations are subject to the rule of Almighty God. And friends, without that truth, the fate of the nations, the fate of our nation, the direction of nations is only left to the scheming and the plotting of men, whether they're good men or whether they're evil men. That's all that's left to just blind fate. There's no instruction for the nations then. If that's all there is, if the nations of this world are not under the rule of Almighty God, there is no instruction for them. But if God Almighty rules and he holds the reins of government and kings and governors and and rulers and he has spoken, then, secondly, the nations are accountable and will be accountable and will face God's judgment. So He rules the nations, and second, He judges the nations. We must know that before we consider how to live as citizens. We need to know God judges the nations. That is what Romans one eight all the way through chapter three is going to deal with. God's people, Israel, yeah, they're fallen. The nations, yeah, we're fallen. All have sinned. All have come short of the glory of God. All of us together. None of us are righteous. All of us have become worthless. None of us have done good. We've all done gone our own way. Every single one of us. Whether those people have received special gener- revelation or general revelation. Whether special revelation like ancient Israel. Or whether, like Egypt, in Scotland, in America, we were not Israel. We are the nations. All of them together have become worthless. Psalm 9, verse 17 says, all the nations forget God. They forget God. They forget him from general revelation. Yeah, it's there. That's Romans 1, right? They have a knowledge of God, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Or they have special revelation. They have the word of God, and they forget him, and they forget what it says. All nations are subject to the God's judgment. Do you understand, in our world, that God does not wait for the decisions of our Supreme Court before him? He is involved. He doesn't say, well, you believe in separation of church and state. You interpret that as utter godlessness of the state. So guess what? I'm going to wait to see how your courts decide to see if you are actually accountable to me or not. God never says that. We are accountable to him. This nation is accountable to Almighty God. The Supreme Court can make thousands of declarations to say otherwise. It doesn't change the fact. All the lawyers, all the judges, all the systems who try to erase our nation's accountability to Almighty God, they can't do it. They cannot do it. Scriptures say That Almighty God is the judge of the nations. If If he rules the nations. If he judges the nations. Third thing that we need to consider. It is our responsibility. The responsibility of the nations. To hear the word of God. So we do not confuse Israel with America. But it was an Israelite prophet that Scott read from earlier who, a chapter earlier than what Scott read, in chapter 1, verse 5, God tells Jeremiah he has made him a prophet not just for the people of Judah, but a prophet to the nations. To the nations. Jeremiah speaks the word of God to the nations, to Babylon. He announces the judgment of God upon a heathen nation. It was God who sent His prophet to the nation of Nineveh, where sin—the sin of Nineveh—cries out to God. And so, the prophet of God is to go there and to cry out. In forty days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. God does not say, "Now, Nineveh." I know you're not my covenant people. Therefore, I'm not going to impugn on your civil liberties. Do I have your permission to send my prophet to you? God doesn't do that. Matter of fact, God had to whip his own prophet to get him to go to Nineveh to do what he wanted. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. If Nineveh had asked, who are you? You're a prophet of God? Who are, who are, you're not one of our national prophets. That prophet had but one answer that he could have said. I'm a man back from the dead. I'm a thick, hard-headed, rebellious prophet. And God got me to your city in the belly of a whale. And I'm here because Jehovah God of the nations has sent me here. Think of Isaiah chapter 34. Where Isaiah says, draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all nations and furious against all their host. The God of the nations? God of judgment? Well, there is a responsibility on the, parts, on, the, on, on the part of the nations to listen to the word of Almighty God. We are not Israel, but this is God's word. And, and God created this world, and he's got the right to speak to all the nations of the earth. So having all that background, He said, that's a long introduction before we get into some application of it. Well, we need to understand, don't we? There is solidarity. Solidarity. So our team can go to Scotland, right? And there is solidarity with those who are in a part of the heavenly kingdom. Same citizenship. There's a solidarity when you're with other believers in Nicaragua. You can't speak. Uh, Logan says, I can't speak Spanish. But there's a solidarity with them because we belong in the same kingdom. The Bible teaches this principle of solidarity, and we need to learn it. We need to know it. We love, as Americans, we love our individual liberty. and In in many ways, it's good. And God does deal with individuals, but he doesn't only deal with individuals. Now, friend, you will live as an individual. You'll die as an individual. You'll stand before God on the day of judgment as an individual. But God also deals with men and women in ordained groups. And you see this throughout the scripture. He's done it since the very beginning. So Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, when did did you sin? (laughs) When did man sin? You say, well, I don't remember going into the voting booth and casting my ballot to have Adam as my representative. I don't remember that. You sinned in Adam. Well, when? Well, I didn't vote for that, but that's the way God works. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse twenty-two: In Adam all die. It is often the case in the Bible that families and nations, where righteous men, oftentimes suffer with the wicked. Or, the opposite is many times true, the wicked are blessed because of one righteous man. Remember Genesis chapter 39, verse 5? It says, it's the story of Joseph. And we're told that God blessed the house of Potiphar for Joseph's sake. So let's just think about the house of Potiphar. Remember Potiphar's wife? She's no woman of virtue. She is not. She's a scheming, depraved woman. But she was part of the household that was blessed for Joseph's sake. Because of Joseph's labor. You tell me, well, we're not willfully indulging in the sins of our nation. And I say, well, I hope not. (laughs) Good. I'm glad you're not. But friends, I urge you, this afternoon, this evening, turn to Ezra 9, turn to Nehemiah 9, turn to Daniel 9, and you'll see three penitential prayers, three prayers in the Bible. And when they go to God and they pray and they confess the sins of their nation, they do not do it the way we often do it. Oh, God, have mercy, because they're so terrible. They've sinned. They don't know the difference between a man and a woman. Oh, Lord, they killed their babies in the the wombs. Lord, please forgive them. They've all forsaken your commands. That's not what the penitential prayers in the Bible say. They say, we have done wickedly. We have forsaken your commandments. We have not kept your laws, oh, Lord. And when God blesses a nation... Because of a righteous king, many unrighteous people benefited. Because of this principle of solidarity. But so it is in judgment as well. Achan, one man sins. 3,000 Israelites lost their lives at Ai. It's this principle of solidarity. So let's apply Proverbs 14, 34. Dear people, you and I are part of this nation. We are in solidarity. Through no choice of our own, we have reaped a great mountain of blessing and it's been poured out on us only because we are members of this nation. We cannot receive its blessings in solidarity because of the prayers and the lives and the blood of men shed in the past. But when it comes to judgment, that we then fall into some kind of crass individualism and says them, not me. It's not my sins. It's their sins. It's not my apostasies. It's their apostasies. We can't do that because of the principle of solidarity. Solidarity. Remember uh, in Ezekiel chapter 9, when the one is instructed and he goes about and he puts that sweet mark on all the remnant uh, in Israel. And not only were they different from the sinning multitudes around them, but they were aware that they were part of the nation that had grievously sinned against Almighty God. And so we're told They sighed and they cried for the abominations done in the land. First application. Are you prepared to take the sins of our nation as our sins? If there's any hope, people like yourselves, people who, who long to please the Lord... Are you prepared to go through the spiritual pain and agony of identifying yourself with the sinful iniquity and apostasy of our nation? Will you do that? Or will you say, no, I'm just an external observer? Or will you sigh and cry because you are a member of this nation? We, we, we should say, I will not walk the ways the world walks, and I lament, and I cry, because this is my nation. And we have sinned against God. God has been forgotten. The idols of luxury and ease have been established, and guess what, friends? You, too, have followed after them. You, too. As we lament and pray and cry, we do not do so and say, Lord, please establish again Reaganomics in the land. We don't do that. We say, Lord, if everything else is taken away. Lord, we do not pray for a lavish lifestyle. We do not pray that we can buy more things and invent more sin. But Lord, even if it's all stripped away. Oh, that we would live in a world of righteousness, that we might avert the judgment of God. Will you do that? Will you pray that way? Will you lament and pray? But do not pray like the Pharisee. I pray, I thank you, Lord, I'm not like them. Not like the Democrats, or you might say, I'm not like the Republicans, or you might say, I'm not, I know the difference of man and woman. I'm not like them. Don't pray like the Pharisee. Know of our own rebellion, in our own forsaking, in our own forgetting. And let us weep. For we have done this. Second application, if God has spoken and his law is good and right, if he has told us what is morally acceptable, what is just and true, will you seek the standard of right to be promoted above all else? Will you, in the way you live, in your homes, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in the voting booth, will you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? For that Venn diagram that I mentioned at the middle, not one part of it is untouched by God's kingdom. Not one bit of it. You say, of course I seek his kingdom first. That's what we always do. Friends, do not overestimate how fickle of people we really are. Because we're fickle. Views change, and views change fast. Let me give you some examples. 1952, the American Psychiatric Association said homosexuality is a, a sociopathic Personality disturbance. It's a mental disorder. 1953, Eisenhower passes executive order that homosexuals are not allowed to work for the federal government. By the 60s, you have the change of sodomy laws. In 73, the back to the psychiatric association, they remove homosexuality as a mental illness. 1974, one year later, Kathy. Because Michiko is the first openly gay American elected to public office in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Today. We celebrate it. You say, oh yeah, that's them. No, no, that's us too. Let me give you some examples of how wishy-washy church folk can be. And I want to do this in some ways. With uh, remember the blue laws. Anybody remember blue laws? Children, there was actually time when people sitting in this room right here could not go out to eat on Sundays because they were all closed because it was the day of rest. Even if you didn't go to church, it was a day of rest can you imagine that and when those blue laws were removed many moaned and cried and complained about how bad things were becoming but eventually we all took the camp, beat them, join them and now the only people we worry about beating is the assembly of god people to crack a barrel it just changes now I want to say I'm not opposed to eating out on Sunday. But the attitudes of Christians change quickly with culture. That's We change. When I moved here, we are fickle and we're weak to s- stand for things we believe in. I remember, so I moved here from the wicked north, and I come to the, back to what I thought was the south. And I remember, even among our own congregation at that time, remember a vote had just passed, and, and Boyle County had just gone wet. Or damp, or whatever. I didn't even know. When I moved here, I didn't know there were still dry counties. So I moved here, and many people said, Oh, it's terrible. And again, I'm not offended by restaurants having alcohol. It's my choice where I go or I don't go, what I eat or what I don't eat, or what I drink, what I don't drink. But many, so offended, they would not go to a restaurant that served alcohol. Remember that? And you know what changed the tide? When Cracker Barrel started selling mimosas. You know why? Because we're fickle people. And we won't stick. And we won't stand. We're, we're quick to move. And I say those, both of those are, are I say those with a bit of, uh, not jest, but levity. But there's even serious matters to come. What of the prostitute? The harlot? Well, no, no. Let's call them sex workers. Do not look down on their occupation. Now we say, oh, I don't. I would never move on that. What about the grotesqueness of pedophilia? You say, oh no, I couldn't be swayed on that. Remember 1952? We said, oh, this is a travesty for anyone to be this way. Think where we are now. What about abortion? You say, oh, of course I'm abortion. Yet we live in a world that calls it health care. What about mutilating and carving up young children? Well, we're going to call that health care as well. So before you say, no, 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 I would never say that. Don't forget how fickle we are. And right now you commit yourself to stand for truth. Don't be pliable. Remember Pilgrim's Progress? Don't be pliable. Don't be wishy-washy. You be steadfast and live for the Lord, regardless of the cost. You know his standards of right and wrong, which are given in the Scriptures. You seek to please him. You do that in every arena of your life. Do not allow your conscience to be seared and molded by cultural compliance, whether that's at work or whether that's at home. Why? Why? Because righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. I hope this morning you will commit yourselves not only to weep and mourn for the sins of our nation that we would uh, be spared the wrath of the Almighty. Remember, for one righteous... Many are blessed. There's the principle of solidarity. You seek righteousness. You mourn for the sin and you walk in righteous paths. And you commit yourselves to that. You commit yourselves to to obedience to God's moral law in every area. When you vote and when you work, Children, when you are doing school, will you seek to live lives that please the Lord in all ways? That's what's before us. That's how you become a patriotic citizen. That's what it looks like for us as citizens of two kingdoms. Don't be pliable. Be steadfast, live for the Lord, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach upon any people. So I want us to pray today and as we pray, I want you, if you, commit yourself to that, live for the Lord, don't forsake, do not move from his righteous standards. know those around bless him will rest on others as we seek his face and live for him righteousness exalts a nation understand that as we drift and as we sin it's a reproach on any people I want you personally to commit that way I want us to do some other things I want us to pray for those who work in the public arena who faced that and so I want to pray uh, for a number of our people this morning. I want to pray for April Tyler. She's an instructional assistant at Tolliver. I want to pray for Stephanie Wade in the Boyle County system. I want to pray for Mark Wade as superintendent. I want to pray for Carly Ingram. She teaches in Frankfort. I want to pray for Jen Newby on the school board. I want to pray for Austin Kokenhauer in Mercer. I want to pray for Bob Williams, who will be running for mayor. And I want to, even before I say that, let me tell you, I'm not telling you who to vote for, but he's a member of our congregation, so we should rightly pray for him. That he fear the Lord and not man. We want to pray for the civil magistrates, that they are God's deacon in the world. I don't care what kind of voter card you have. We have God's moral law. And so we want to see it promoted and pursued. I don't vote because of cards or history. I vote based upon what is honoring to the Lord and what is for the good of my neighbor. Will you commit to that? We commit to those things. Will you pray with me this morning for these that I mentioned and for our government? Recognizing God's sovereign rule, his judgment, and our responsibility to listen to the word of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are great and glorious. Hear us, we pray. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And so, Lord, may righteousness abound in our land. May we seek your face. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for we have forgotten you. Our forefathers, whose lives were not perfect, but lived in the fear of you, now are lived for excess and comfort and greed and pleasure. Forgive us, Lord. We've 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 worshipped just as many, if not more, idols than all the rest. Forgive us. Lord, your word is true. Your law is good. The principles of your law are not only good because you tell us that. It's good for us. And so, Lord, may righteousness increase in the land. I pray for these who work in the public sphere. I pray for April. I pray for Stephanie. I pray for Mark. I pray for for Carly and for Jen and for Austin and for Bob. Those who deal in public circles all the time. May this verse be etched in their minds and hearts. That in our Venn diagram, we never say, yeah, this is what God says, but this is actually what I'm held to here. And so I'm going to know, Lord, let us seek your kingdom and your righteousness first at all times. And may for may it be for the good of the next generation, here, may it be for the good of our citizens and our country. Lord, as Jennifer shared about Scotland, uh, less than one percent is believing Christian. From Scotland, this, this country that has sent missionaries around the globe, who have, has, has pastors in uh, years past that are remembered to this day and revered. Oh, Lord, let us seek your face and let us live for you, trusting your sovereign rule in your mighty hand have mercy for Christ's sake and let the nations be glad and let them rejoice in the triune God in the salvation that is found in Christ alone